0: What's relying on a GPS doing to your brain?
1: Why is it that we are always rushed? Why do we feel it's never okay to potentially get lost or to find our own way under our own
0: power with our own problem-solving skills? Coming up, M.R. O'Connor helps us explore our innate sense of direction as a wayfinder. Walking a long-distance pilgrim trail in Europe can be an exhausting way to spend a vacation. But people who've hiked the Way of St. Francis wouldn't have it any other way.
2: You push yourself and you get to know yourself. You're away from all your distractions that you have back home.
3: To be able to see the sights and smell the smells and enjoy the experiences that St. Francis must have had, it feels that it connects me to a history that's much deeper than I could experience at home. We're walking through a 1,000 years of history on the Pilgrim Trails of Italy. In the hour ahead, it's Travel with
0: Rick Steves. Come along. the author of a detailed guide to the medieval Way of St. Francis and the head of an organization that helps Americans plan pilgrim walks across Italy, explain your options for trekking Italy's ancient trails in just a second on today's Travel with Rick Steves. And a little later in the hour, a journalist who's investigated how we navigate the world shares the science and the mystery she's discovered over how finding our way makes us human. Hiking for a week or a month on a historic pilgrimage trail in Europe has become a popular way for people from all over the world to rejuvenate themselves. It's gotten so that Spain's popular Camino de Santiago is even starting to feel a little crowded sometimes. If you'd prefer a quieter pilgrim route, Italy may have the answer. Sandy Brown and Aaron Savaglia have covered hundreds of miles on the historic walking trails of Italy, and they want to help you give it a try. They've recently helped to found an organization called American Pilgrims to Italy, and it's designed to help people like you and me to plan a pilgrimage hike in Italy. And Sandy has written a detailed guide to trekking the Way of Saint Francis from Florence to Assisi and then to Rome. They're joining us now on Travel with Rick Steves to recommend trails that Saint Francis may have himself trekked. Aaron and Sandy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah,
2: Rick. thanks for having us.
0: So. Europe has these venerable hikes that are really long, and it has these pilgrimage trails that really have a, a a little bit of a different meaning. Aaron, what's the difference between just a long, multi-day hike in Europe that can be famous and, and well-established and a pilgrimage?
2: Well, to me, a pilgrimage signifies a long walk to a place of spiritual meaning. And so, to me... The first one that I ever did was The Way of St. Francis. And so walking along paths and stopping in towns where he had been and there were stories about him had more of a spiritual context to it than just trekking.
0: Like the Camino goes to the the supposed tomb of St. James, is Mm -hmm. that right? In Santiago de Compostela. Yes. That would be the goal. And people in the Middle Ages walked from Paris all the way to that northwest corner of Spain with that goal in mind. Mm -hmm. Martin Luther hiked from Way up in Germany, all the way to Rome, he was told to hike down there. It was kind of a personal, what would you call it, Sandy? A personal ordeal or a personal... I think you uh, could say a pilgrimage
3: also. A Mm -hmm. pilgrimage. Yeah. And then when he got to Rome, he walked up the steps of the Sacra Scala on his knees. And had quite an experience in Rome. It was life-changing for him. So life-changing that started the Reformation. (laughs) (laughs) He did
0: a lot of thinking, and he got to
3: Rome. And Uh I understand
0: when he got up to the uh, top of those steps, he kind of goes... Does uh-huh. this really all make sense? Exactly. Uh, it's a time when you think about these things, isn't it? Yeah. Now, when we think about Italy, you guys are both specializing in, in pilgrimage trails in Italy. Mm-hmm. St. Francis would be the the star of these things. Uh, Sandy, exactly. what is, how does St. Francis relate to these pilgrimage trails?
3: Well, The Via di Francesco, or the Way of St. Francis, is a modern connecting of the various different sites from St. Francis' time. And so, for instance, when he had a big experience, the Stigmata experience at Santuario della Verna, Uh that's connected then with Gubbio, where he spoke with the wolf and Assisi, where he was born and had his last days, and so on. Okay,
0: so this is a modern lacing together of these stops that people who want to get into, whether they want to hike, an excuse for a hike, or to actually get into the whole life and the teaching of St. Francis, they would do this walk. Exactly. And the name of your book is Trekking the Way of St. Francis. That's right. From Florence to Assisi to Rome. So that's what that would be. And then we hear about the
3: Francigena, the Via Francigena is a historic walk, and so it's a little different from the mm-hmm. way of St. Francis in terms of it was put together in the ancient world, or in the Middle Ages, actually, because there was a, a priest by the name of Sidric that was elevated to the Episcopacy, and he was supposed to appear in Rome to receive his pallium, you know, which is the symbol of his office. And so he walked with a retinue from Canterbury across France, Switzerland, down through Italy, and arrived in Rome and then instructed his secretary to take notes of the way back. And those notes were all contained at the cathedral in Canterbury, where they sat for a thousand years. Wow. And then a thousand years later, people said, well, what is this? And they put together the modern-day Via Francigena, following that oh, same so that's itinerary. that's a modern-day uh, revisit of this. Now, does that relate to Canterbury Tales at all? It does in a way, because... Well, in the case of Canterbury Tales, they were ending at Canterbury. Mm-hmm. In the case of this, they were starting at Canterbury. Okay. Now, would St. Francis have actually walked on that trail? On the Via Francigena, no. Although it's very possible that he walked portions of it in order to get up to the Comunidad de Santiago, because he did walk the Santiago. de Santiago he did. Okay. in 1214. But the piece of the Way of St. Francis that's historic is that he was summoned to Rome by Pope Innocent III, and he walked from Assisi to Rome and ended up at the St. John Lateran Church. So that's one of the stops on the way of St. Francis. And it follows roughly his okay, trek so from Assisi if to you
0: Rome. were so inclined, you could leave Assisi and be meditating on St. Francis and his teaching and his experience all the way to Rome. That's actually the goal, right. And then the
3: finishing point would be St. Peter's or exactly what? Well, we stop at St. John Lateran, mm-hmm. uh, but we end up at St. Peter's. Then in my book, I include the pilgrimage churches of Rome as an option at the end because there are seven historic pilgrim churches and it's about a 25-kilometer walk and you hit all seven of those churches. Quite an interesting walk in modern-day Rome, but touching on medieval and ancient sites. Sandy Brown is the author of the Cicerone Trekking Guide to the Way of
0: St. Francis. And Aaron Savaglia heads an organization that prepares American travelers to explore the pilgrim trails of Italy. We have links to their websites with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. So, Sandy, when you come to Piazza del Popolo... I try to think of it like a, a pilgrim five hundred years ago. Yeah.
3: What, what, what do you think when you come to Piazza del Popolo? One thing is, before you get there, you would have crossed the Ponte Milvio, uh-huh. and that's a wonderful and historic place because that's where the vision of Constantine was with a cross that's in the sky when he became
0: a Christian back in three twelve or three ten or something. Exactly. Like that.
3: Yeah. So then you follow the road into Piazza del Popolo, and of course, what you would say and what I would say first is go into the Santa Maria Church and look at the Caravaggios there. That's right. So that's a piece that you have to do. Mm -hmm. And then we would want people to walk along the ancient streets that head toward the Vatican. So there's the street where they made the beads that go on the rosaries. Uh And that's a street that we'd want people to go by. And it sort of skirts along the top of the, um, you know, a couple of other, like, Piazza Navona right. on the way to uh, St. Peter's.
0: And, and if you were a pilgrim, you would know that I go down this boulevard to that obelisk and then I look to the left and I see a dome and then I look down there and I see a statue and you, you would know how to
3: navigate through the city by these long, beautiful, elegant streets that led to great landmarks? Yes, and especially the pedestrian streets. Mm-hmm. So by the time a pilgrim gets to Rome, they've walked maybe 100 or 1,000 or 1,700 kilometers. Mm-hmm. So they're also looking for a bed and a cafe and uh, wanted to do the kind of walk that'll get them in the most economical kind of way to their destination. But then when they arrive in St. Peter's, there is a certificate that they can receive if they've walked at least 100 kilometers. It's the equivalent on the community de Santiago is the Compostela. This mm-hmm. is called the Testimonium. Okay, and so that's a nice treat for everyone. So I was that. going to ask you about this. I know when you go to Community Santiago,
0: you collect this passport. Talk about the credential and the practical reason for that when you are a pilgrim in Italy, heading to Rome.
2: So the credential, or they call it the credenziale, it's um, a paper that's like your passport. It's what differentiates you as a pilgrim from just anybody else traveling. So certain places will give you discounts on your lodging if you have your credential and basically every town that you stop in you get a stamp along the way. Okay. Then when you arrive at your final destination, that's sort of your proof that hey, I'm pretty awesome because I just did this really amazing walk and these are the stamps to show it.
0: In Rome is there actually a, a regular place that you go and you can there's somebody there and that their job is to stamp this credential?
2: Yes. You go to the pilgrims office and I did not have to wait at all. We went in, I was walking with four friends and uh-huh. We arrived, we had to fill out a piece of paper, and it was actually quite emotional, thinking, you know this is it, my journey is officially done, and I'm filling out this paper showing where I started, and you get your final stamp, and then you receive your, like Sandy said, your testimonium.
0: And then you have a a souvenir for this, and something to remember, and it's probably a, a beautiful moment. This is Travel with Rick Steves and our guests are Aaron Sevilla and Sandy Brown. Aaron's the president of the nonprofit organization called American Pilgrims to Italy, and Sandy is the author of The Way of Saint Francis, From Florence to Assisi to Rome. So, Aaron, you've founded and you are the president of American Pilgrims to Italy. Exactly what is that organization?
2: We're a small nonprofit organization that's all volunteer based. And basically what we do is supply information in English on the various Italian pilgrimage routes. We also distribute credentials currently for the Way of St. Francis and for the Way of St. Benedict as well.
0: And Sandy, you've written The Way of St. Francis. And I can imagine if you're doing this trek, you really need to have this information. It's got elevation gains. It's got maps of each day's hike. It's got information on eating and sleeping and uh, a very informative look at all the sites you'll encounter along the way. Uh, What was your goal in writing this
3: book? My goal was to help open up this wonderful pilgrimage to people who are English speakers because there already was a guidebook in Italian, Uh there was a guidebook in German, and there was a guidebook in Dutch, but there was no guidebook in the English language.
0: Now I've got friends in Umbria that are very excited about investing in the infrastructure of this trail. What is your assessment of the infrastructure and and what
3: needs to be done to make this trail, you know, well-organized
0: as the community Santiago
3: in Spain? Well, there are two things really that need to be done. The first is there needs to be a network of low-cost hostels. It's very uneven in Italy. For instance, Mm -hmm. in the town of Gubbio, there are nine parochial Mm hostels all competing with each other. But then you get to the town of Assisi and Assisi has no pilgrim hostel. Mm -hmm. So there needs to be a more, you know, dependable and thorough set mm-hmm. of hostels for people in order to be able to keep the costs low then the second thing is we need to have better signage so the people in Umbria are working hard on that they promise us every year that this will be the year that there's new signage and i believe them this year especially
2: well that, yes because 2019 is the year of slow tours in italy so every year they pick a different theme for the year
0: all right. And what's your hope, Aaron, that they'll be able to do with this focus?
2: Um, I agree with Sandy. I think mm-hmm. probably the biggest complaint that we hear from people is that the cost of lodging isn't, there's not as many options for so pilgrims. It's, it's hard
0: to be a pilgrim and not have a lot of money mm-hmm. if you have to pay uh, yeah. Assisi prices for accommodations.
3: Yeah. And Assisi is more expensive than some of the other towns. But right. what these walks have on the Spanish Camino is Italian food. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, having walked the Camino de Santiago five times now, I'm a little tired of menu del peregrino. <laughs> yeah. And you get to Italy and you're offered a three-course meal and the food is spectacular oftentimes. Uh, and they take such pride in the cuisine.
0: Sandy and Aaron take your calls for exploring the Pilgrim Trails of Italy in just a minute at 877-333-7425 on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll compare your GPS with ancient ways of knowing your place on the planet in just a bit. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, we're looking at our options for exploring the pilgrim trails of Italy, including routes that St. Francis himself is said to have walked across Tuscany and Umbria. Aaron Savaglia is president of American Pilgrims to Italy, and Sanford Sandy Brown has walked the length of several historic trails in Europe and writes the trekking guide to the Way of St. Francis. Jake's calling in from Bend in Oregon. Jake, thanks for your call.
4: Hi, Rick. You know, I've wanted to go on pilgrimage for several years, and I am just now beginning to plan a pilgrimage. I really wanted to find an alternative pilgrimage to Santiago to Compostela, uh, mainly because I've had friends in the last few years that have told me that the experience isn't really what they felt a true pilgrimage experience should be. There were so many people... A lot of the accommodations were full. It was hard to find solitude. And then there was like a wave of uh, what they call pampered pilgrims, people that actually pay people to take their luggage for them mm-hmm. so that they can just walk. And they said that the experience was disappointing. So I I'm, I really wanted to find an alternative that that might embrace a more traditional pilgrimage experience. And I was thinking that Italy might be the perfect solution. Uh, my wife and I spent time in Umbria in 2009, and we were really taken with the deep traditions of St. Francis that we found there. So really, I, I was just looking for specific recommendations for a pilgrimage route that might incorporate some of those traditions. I'm 60, and I'm reasonably fit, so I'd be looking for a route in like the 4 to 500-mile range. And I could do maybe 10 to 15 miles per day, maybe six days a week. And I would prefer a route that would avoid large towns and cities.
0: So, okay, so, well, Sandy wrote the book on this. Sandy, what would you recommend uh, in this case for Jake?
3: I would encourage you to consider the Way of St. Francis. And especially if you're looking for quiet towns, you could start, if not at Florence, start at Santuario della Verna, which is... I think one of the most beautiful spots i've ever seen in italy and anglicize
0: that name so we can hear it sanctuary
3: sanctuary of laverna laverna okay and it's a mountaintop convent there's this monastery at the top of this mountain it is isolated and beautiful it's magical yeah it's truly a wonderful place
4: that'd be a good starting point
3: i think so then you could continue on to assisi and go as far toward rome as you want if large cities bother you, you could stop at, say, Rieti. There is even a little pilgrimage walk around what's called the Holy Valley near Rieti, where you can go to Greccio and La Foresta and some other important St. Francis sites. Mm. That would be a beautiful walk of about three weeks in length.
4: Hmm. About three weeks. Okay, for accommodations, are there hostels there now, uh, small hotels that are kind of pilgrim-friendly?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And they're becoming more and more pilgrim-friendly as time goes on. So there are hostels, which in Italy you need to call a couple of days in advance so that you can reserve those. And There are also agriturismi, which are uh, like rural Farm bed houses. and breakfast farmhouses, and little hotels also. So I recommend that people do plan reservations ahead. And you okay. can find out information either on my book or by going to the it website. Okay, Viadefrancesco.it. Oh. That's the official Jake, website. Jake, thank
0: you so much for your call, and good luck on your, um, on your aspirations to be a pilgrim.
4: Thank you so much. I appreciate the information.
0: You bet. Buon so, Camino. <laughs> Buon Camino. I love that. Is that Italian? Bon yeah, camino? Because yes, that's is. Spanish, too, almost, isn't it? Exactly. Right. Spanish is buen Camino. Oh, <laughs> right. Hey, uh, you know, when you were talking with Jake... You both got enthusiastic when you talked about a particular site. And as I was looking through um, Sandy's book, I don't know these places. It, you know, mm-hmm. I, I wrote a book on Italy, too, and I don't know these places. This is a parallel world. <laughs> um, talk for a second about, from a sightseeing point of view, what are what are some of your favorite discoveries that you wouldn't get if you were a typical tourist, but you would get if you are a pilgrim? Aaron?
2: Well, the Laverna Sanctuary is definitely one magical place. It's where St. Francis received his stigmata. Mm -hmm. Every day at 3 p.m., there's a procession to the chapel where it happened. And the tourists are kicked out by 7 p.m., so then it becomes this quiet sanctuary on the top of a hillside. So the um, tourists
0: are kicked out, meaning the pilgrims can stay?
2: Pilgrims, if you're staying in the dormant, like in oh, their hostel. That's, with, I bet that's you're looking at your clock.
0: To, well, when does this
2: place <laughs> go back into the
3: Middle Ages? Huh? <laughs> that's good. Yeah,
2: so that's quite a magical place.
3: What about Subiaco?
2: So uh, one of my favorite places was Subiaco along the way of St. Benedict. Uh-huh. They've got this beautiful monastery that sits high up on top as well.
0: I, I just visited the uh, hermitage of uh, That What's that? It's like prison, I think it means. Mm-hmm. It's a Benedictine monastery on Mount Subiaso, And the serenity there and the calm aura was just beautiful. And the hospitality of the monks. Mm-hmm. They're so friendly, beautiful souls. That was a touristy spot. I would imagine when you go to some of these less touristy, similar places, the welcome you get is as genuine as can be.
2: I've never been anywhere where I haven't been treated just with so much respect for being a pilgrim, and just they're just welcoming people.
0: When we talk about the pilgrimage trails in Italy, I just want to make sure I understand, because people always talked about the Via Francigena, and Sandy, your book is called The Way of St. Francis. What Mm -hmm. is the difference?
3: Well, they're both related to the word, the same, is the same root for France. But Francigena means... The people of Frankish origin. So there's this walk, this road, and people of Frankish origin walked on it. So it's the Via Francigena. The Via di Francesco is Francis, whose name is Frankish.
0: Okay. (laughs)
3: St. Francis is an actual personality. Mm -hmm. So those are two different, very different things that oftentimes are confused. But the purpose of going on a pilgrimage can be realized on
0: either of these? Exactly. Our guides to the pilgrim trails of Italy are Aaron Savaglia and Sandy Brown. Aaron heads the nonprofit organization American Pilgrims to Italy. Sandy writes the Way of St. Francis guidebook and posts about his pilgrim expeditions at caminoist.org. That's spelled C A M I N O I S T.org. Sandy's also updating a guide to the popular Camino de Santiago in Spain. It's scheduled to be released this January by Cicerone Guides. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Ryan's calling in from St. Louis in Missouri. Ryan, thanks for calling.
5: Thank you, Rick. Uh, it's nice to speak to you.
0: Yeah. Have you, uh, been, have you done uh, any pilgrim hikes yourself?
5: I, ha- I have. I've walked the Camino in 2013, and in 2017 and 2018, I've been walking portions of the Via Francigena in Italy, and I've written a sort of a how-to guide for both walks to talk about some of the practicalities Mm-hmm. I suppose what struck me most about the difference between the two trails is uh, the people that you encounter, and it's just such a different experience. In Spain, there are so many pilgrims, uh, and there's so much camaraderie between the pilgrims that it's very much a shared experience with all these other people. Uh, and I was anticipating something similar when I got to Italy to walk to Francigena, and instead I found that for the first two days I didn't meet uh, anyone. And I didn't even have a conversation with anyone for about three days. They're both excellent ways to travel. The camaraderie is, is wonderful in Spain. I love the Camino. Um, but Italy is obviously Italy. And that solitude is terrific, and the scenery is terrific, the food, the wine, the art, the history. And passing through these places that you don't encounter as a tourist, but you do encounter on foot as a pilgrim.
0: So, you know, I've heard that the Camino in Spain is, is getting so popular and they can you can do it by bicycle and there's people that are just kind of clowning around and stuff and, it, you know, it risks becoming a, a little too much. On the other hand, the the camaraderie is just famous. I mean, it's just wonderful, the people you meet, these beautiful souls from all over the world with all different kinds of uh, approaches to their faith or, or their love of nature or whatever they're after, you know, and it's just a wonderful human sort of... Uh, Celebration, and on the other hand, in uh, the in Italy, you don't have that popular uh, destination feeling about it. But as you said, the solitude's beautiful, uh, the nature, the history, the food, and the culture. So, Sandy, is that a fair way to compare the two? Or what would you say from that experience?
3: Well, I'm not sure what month our caller walked on the Francigena end, but it's important to compare numbers. So, for instance, in August in Santiago, there may be. 1,800 to 2,000 people that check in at the uh, cathedral. In one day. In finishing, one day. In finishing the... Exactly. Yeah. Whereas in Rome, finishing the Via Francigena, there might be 15 or 20. So yeah. it's a much different scale. And I never found myself alone on the Italian stretch of the Via Francigena. But I never found myself competing for a bed either, which you do have to do sure. sometimes on the community de Santiago. So it's a much different experience Probably we, more you, solitude. More solitude on the
0: trail, but plenty mm-hmm. of ways to connect with local people in the various villages that sure. you stay in, the places you, you stop in on over the course of your day. Yeah. All right. Ryan, thanks for your call. Uh,
5: can I make one more comment? Sure. Yeah. It's important to remember that these are not single trails. They're networks of trails.
1: Mm-hmm. So if
5: you want to walk the Community of Santiago, you have about 10 or 12 different choices of the paths that you take to get to Santiago, some of which are more and less busy than others. The Via Francigena in Italy is actually one of those routes. I've stood at a crossroads, and there is a Via sign pointing south towards Rome and a Camino yellow arrow pointing north towards Santiago. So these these routes give you lots of options if you want to do something that's more or less uh, crowded or more or less um, art-intensive or you want to try a wine region or something like that. You have a lot of choice.
0: Yeah, I've heard people doing the community of Santiago on, on uh, numerous trips, and each time with a different route. That's an option. That's why the you got that uh, scallop shell, right? It's got all the different uh, ridges of that shell converging on the That's same right. place, mm-hmm. the That's the right. tomb right. of Saint James. All right, Ryan. Best wishes with your work and with your writing. Thanks for your Thank call. Thank you very much, Rick. You bet. You know, one thing I've always wondered about is what's better if you're on a pilgrimage to go alone or to go with a friend
3: or a group. Um, what do you think? Sandy. Well, Erin might have her own opinion about this, but I'll tell you for me on the Camino de Santiago, I like to go alone or with somebody. If I go alone, I meet people and it's more common that a person that goes with somebody else is already sort of self-contained and Mm -hmm. less likely to meet other people. So for instance, in 2011, I met this group of about 10 people and we've walked together almost every year. We have reunions now in different places in Europe where we come together to remember our walk you together. You just met them on the trail. Met them on the trail. And we you stayed together f- the whole time? Yeah, yeah. Right. Now, on the Via Francigena, I was walking by my own, but I came across a Quebecois from um, New Brunswick, I guess. Or actually, not a Quebecois, but um, he his English was great. He was walking from Canterbury, and we walked together for the next 10 days. It's nice to have companionship, it's Mm -hmm. important to have somebody that understands that pilgrim walking is also time for silence and solitude, even if you're walking together with somebody. And it's something that's a little bit of a hardship if you, for instance, you have a spouse and they're a fast walker and you're a slow walker, you discover that pace makes a lot of difference Mm -hmm. as to whether you can have a walking partner. Aaron, what's your thought on doing a pilgrimage alone or, or with a partner?
2: So I've done both. I've walked some stages completely alone. And as a woman, it's a very different feeling walking alone. Mm. I really enjoyed it. However, I had people coming up and asking me all the time if I was scared. So the first time I walked away of St. Francis, I walked with my sister for a portion of it. And we came across a group of Italians. They were, had all left and we're walking alone, and we formed a unit, and we're still all in touch and great that's friends. Great. And I, in fact, went on with one of them to walk the way of St. Benedict. I was so. a little
0: disappointed with Martin Sheen in The Way, in that movie, because <laughs> he was walking with a bunch of people the whole time, and he never yeah. had much time yeah. for himself. And I thought, yeah. that's kind of, I think it'd be easier to walk with people, but I think, it, for me, it might be a richer experience if i made myself do it alone. Plus, as you said, you'd meet more people along the way. You probably wouldn't be any lonelier. I, I think... Uh, you'd have a lot of interaction with a lot of people. Sandy Brown and Aaron Savaglia are taking us along the pilgrim trails of Italy right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Sandy has served as a Methodist pastor for many years and is now writing guidebooks to the Way of St. Francis and the Camino di Santiago. Erin is president of American Pilgrims to Italy, and she's walked the Via di Francesco and Camino di San Benedetto. Her group offers advice and credentials for Americans wishing to explore Italy's pilgrim trails at AmericanPilgrimstoItaly.org. We're almost out of time. I just want to know quickly, Aaron, roughly how many miles a day does a
3: pilgrimage entail?
2: I would say 12 to 15, at least.
3: Sandy? What? Same for me. My longest ever was about 28 miles. And that's, that's, that's a lot. That's more than you want to do. 10, yeah, f- that was 10, about 15 15 mine, 10, 15 miles too. a day. Yeah. You take a, I think they take a month to
0: get from Saint-Jean-de-Piore... Saint, Jean-Pierre de Port. saint jean pierre de Saint-Jean, that's why I don't speak Spa- uh, uh French. That's why I don't <laughs> speak French. Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port to Santiago. It takes about a month, and that's right.
2: probably 15 miles a day or something. Well, like, and something can like I that. can I say one thing real quick, too? With the Italian mm. routes, yeah. there is a difference in that the Spanish ones, you tend to walk through town so you can stop and get a coffee. Right. The Italian ones, a lot of times, you might leave a town and not enter another town until your destination What's for that? the night.
0: It's that um, sparse.
2: That's at, a, at some stages, def- That's right. definitely.
0: And then, a uh, quick uh, tip on on just foot care, uh, blisters, boots. <laughs> uh, just in a nutshell, Aaron, what's your best advice?
2: I am a big fan of trail runners and trekking poles. I did one Camino with trail runners and one with hiking boots. Hiking boots, I had several blisters and trail runners, fashion. meaning
0: uh, tennis shoes designed for the exactly, yeah. yeah, and walking sticks like and Germans use
2: exactly.
3: I thought that was just Germans.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Walking sticks, yeah.
0: Sandy, so walking sticks, uh, Aaron says, and trail runners. I use
3: sock liners, Uh and I use then wool socks. I Mm. wear boots, but my boots and my feet are very good friends. They have a close working relationship. Okay. And I always practice. I train in advance primarily so that I can know that my boots and my feet are going to get along. That would be (laughs) fundamental, I would think. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about pilgrimage trails in
0: Italy. Our guests are Sandy Brown and Aaron Zavalia. Now, you guys both are just, you're just beaming with um, (laughs) an almost evangelical love of this pilgrimage experience. (laughs) Uh, I just would like to wrap it up with a thought from each of you about what is the magic of a pilgrimage for somebody who's traveled a lot but never experienced this. Aaron, why do you care?
2: I think you push yourself and you get to know yourself. You're away from all your distractions that you have back home and you'll find yourself really really tired and yeah you, ha- you got to find the strength within to keep on going. So it's just it's a chance to really get to know yourself better.
0: When I'm on the end of the community Santiago, I like to be in that square when people reach it mm. and I see them just Overwhelmed with jubilation and exhaustion, yes, and, uh, and a feeling that yes, we did it. You know, yeah, yeah. Sandy, you're a you're a Methodist pastor, and uh, this is not something I would really think of as a Methodist experience, more of a
3: Catholic <laughs> experience. <laughs> but you true. do it, you do it with a, a religious fervor and a, yeah. and, and a and a gusto. What is it? I was it? accused by a monk of being part Catholic. <laughs> but I did major at University of Washington in medieval history. Uh-huh. And so this is a connection with something that's been fascinating for me for a long time. So I love the walk itself. But then at the end of the day, I don't mind sort of stumbling into a restored 10th century monastery that's out in the middle of the forest that now has turned into a hotel, but still with the Romanesque chapel at the side. And to understand that this history is a thousand or more years old and to be able to walk in it, to be able to see the sights and smell the smells and enjoy the experiences that St. Francis must have had, it feels that it connects me to a history that's much deeper than I could experience at home.
0: And to feel like in our society, everything is faster and and better looking and what are you going to put on the Internet and all this kind of stuff. And then to have a a vacation... That really lets you be quiet, where you can hear your heart, where you can be under this beautiful sky, where you can be in touch with this heritage and centuries of of, uh, devotion and beautiful nature and good Italian food. (laughs) What's not to like about that? You
2: can't go wrong.
0: What's the word again? Bon camino.
2: Bon camino.
0: All right. Hey, well, Aaron, (laughs) Aaron Zavilla, Sandy Brown, Bon camino.
2: Grazie. Thank you.
0: the science and the mystery of how humans navigate the world. We explore that next on Travel with Rick Steves. If your phone's GPS suddenly stopped working, how long would it take before you became lost? Science journalist M. R. O'Connor believes that the more we rely on technology in our pockets, the more we risk losing the ability to navigate the world using the senses we were born with. In her book Wayfinding: The Science and Mystery of How Humans Navigate the World, Mara shares what she discovered about traditional navigational methods in the Arctic, the Australian Outback, and South Pacific. Mara, welcome to Travel with Rick Steves.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here.
0: Like I think most people, I've always marveled at how salmon know how to get back to the place where they're born to lay their eggs and how birds know where to migrate and you know, even how if you dump a dog or a cat out of your car somewhere far away, they still know how to find their way home. Not that I've done that. And, you know, you make the case that humans have this same inborn navigational skills. And if we don't use them because we're relying too much on GPS, we might lose them. And, and that wouldn't be a good thing.
1: Yeah, I think the question for me arose out of a very specific experience that I had where, like many people, I had adopted a GPS into my life very seamlessly. It quickly became the way that I found my way, even in, say, Manhattan or Brooklyn, where I live, but also when I travel to new, unknown places. But I had a couple of experiences where a GPS led me astray, and in those moments, I kind of stepped back and I thought, oh, this is you know interesting. Why have I put so much faith in this device hmm. as the means to get from A to B? And that kind of got me thinking about what it is that we are doing when we navigate anyway. And I realized I didn't actually understand not only how that works in the brain, but also I had never even thought of navigation as a form of sort of cultural practice and that those practices might be different depending on where you grew up and which culture, you know, you lived in.
0: And then if you leave the world of reading maps and you just rely on GPS I feel like I'm neglecting that muscle and I might lose it because I don't like GPS. GPS is is the norm now. People think you're old-fashioned if you have a map, but I find people that have never learned how to read a map and have always read it on GPS, they're not very good navigators.
1: What I have noticed in my own experience and speaking to people during the research for this book is at least anecdotally, I think that the more we use GPS, the more we become dependent on it. So it's sort of like what we aren't doing when we use GPS. And what we aren't doing is accumulating as much spatial knowledge about the places that we are traveling through. The task of remembering is given over to the GPS. But once we relinquish that task, it's sort of hard to to feel confident enough to put it away the next time. And so it seems to be a bit of a cycle that we can get caught in where You know, if we're not nourishing those skills and practices day to day, we feel that we need a GPS more and more.
0: We're seduced by that technology. And the irony is the more we rely on it, the more we need it.
1: Yeah, because it is so powerful. You know, and the book does take a kind of critical stance towards outsourcing our navigation skills to a device. But I don't want to minimize that device itself and how useful and practical and powerful it can be. And there are many situations where I will use a GPS, you know, particularly when time is of the essence, you know, and that seems to be the reason why so many people have adopted it is because they don't feel that they have time to waste and the GPS can be the fastest and most efficient way to get somewhere. But I think what I started to realize also was why is it that we are always rushed you know why why do we feel it's never okay to potentially get lost or mm-hmm. um to find our own way under our own power with our own problem solving skills and so i think that i started to see gps as a kind of indication of how harried and almost commodified our relationship to time itself is, mm-hmm. and um, and I think that is concerning, and certainly changes how we think about traveling and the sense of freedom to explore autonomously a place and to learn it.
0: Because GPS takes us there directly to save time, but not to not to necessarily right. be there to almost skirt through it. You want to get from A to B.
1: One thing about GPS too is that you always know where you want to go in order to use it. And so it is quite different from saying, I'm just going to go and I'll figure, you know, I'll find places as I go and I'll, I'll learn about a place as I go. Then using GPS, we say, I need to get hmm. here. That's mm-hmm. where I want to go. And then you just do it. So it, it is a quite different perspective on, you know, that experience of, of being in a place and, and wanting to go out and explore.
0: We're finding our way through the world right now with M.R. O'Connor on Travel with Rick Steves. Her book is called Wayfinding, The Science and Mystery of How Humans Navigate the World. Her website is mroconnor.info. So, Maura, you've been studying the mystery of how organisms and animals can migrate and, and orient with such precision. I talked earlier about birds knowing where to migrate and and so on. What are some examples in the animal kingdom that just kind of proves to you that creatures, whether they're animals or pre-modern humans, have this innate ability to, to find their way around.
1: Yeah, I became very fascinated by navigation in the animal kingdom because the book is about human navigation, but what's so interesting is how different animal and human navigation is. And the main difference to me seemed that it's humans as a species that are uniquely capable of becoming lost, whereas animals, I mean, I'm not going to say that no animal has become lost and that individual animals don't get lost, but as species, if they were prone to becoming lost, then they would have gone extinct. And what you see is that over the course of evolution, animals have developed uncanny uh, mechanisms and abilities to find their way with, as you said, this incredible precision. And as I started researching that topic, what was striking was we know and it's so well documented what species can do, but scientists really still struggle to explain the mechanisms that allow them to do it. So, you know, for instance, leatherback turtles travel from California, they go 10,000 miles all the way to Indonesia. Then they return to the like the exact beaches that they were born on. Mm. You have these bar-tailed godwits birds that travel six thousand miles over open ocean from Alaska to New Zealand. And they go over open ocean, and so if they had just a few degrees off in directional error, they would be hundreds of miles off course, and they would die. And so there are many hypotheses about how different species do this, and the magnetic compass is the most promising one. But in terms of of where that compass is and and what is the biological hardware that explains it, that's all a mystery. And as a science journalist,
0: I often
1: find that the mysteries are the
0: most interesting to probe. (laughs) And what's interesting, uh, you you write about in 1818, uh, there was a Scottish captain sailing in search of the Northwest Passage, and he befriended Inuit hunters, and they had never seen a map before, He showed them the map, and they understood it, and they helped him expand the map just because they knew the land so intimately. You write about how in the Arctic, indigenous people know how to navigate roadless places just like birds or turtles do.
1: But I think what's very important is the reason why in certain indigenous cultures people are incredibly skilled at wayfinding is not because they possess the same biological mechanisms that animals do. It's because they have highly skilled cultural practices that have been passed down from one generation to the next and through direct experience of the landscape, through the practice of those traditions, um, through their own empirical learning and deduction and powers of inference, they are able to use the power of memory and perception and attention to find their way. There's a tradition in the literature around navigation going back to 19th century and even before of Westerners going to places like the Arctic or like Australia and trying to explain the skills of indigenous communities that they visited Because they saw they had no material technologies like maps or compasses, and so they could not understand how it was that they had such intimate knowledge of the landscape. So what really explains these powers of navigation is the fact that they had these cultural traditions and practices that over time and coupled with direct experience of the landscape led to uh, highly uh, masterful um, navigators.
0: When Lewis and Clark were tasked with venturing across the entire what would become the United States to the West Coast, they didn't know how to do it, but they had uh, Indian pathfinders that made it possible for them. And these Native American guides, they didn't have charts. They just had these skills, right?
1: Right, and I think they had the knowledge of generations. And so one of the themes of the book and a topic that I didn't anticipate covering when I started out writing um, and reporting it is this idea of oral storytelling as a mnemonic device for navigation. And so what you see is that in many, many different cultures around the world, there seems to be this commonality of using oral storytelling, stories, songs as sort of vehicles for topographical information. And it seems that the brain can memorize songs and stories, you know, more than it can just abstract, isolated, decontextualized pieces of of information.
0: You wrote about that in the context of the Australian bush with what what you called dreaming tracks and dreamtime cartography.
1: I think that is one of the most compelling and beautiful examples of that using stories as mnemonic devices for navigation. And I was really fascinated by the idea of the song lines of, in Aboriginal communities in Australia, this tradition of belief that the landscape was created by the travels of their own ancestors in a time known as the Dreamtime. And through their movements across the earth, they created the topography. They created the rocks and the rivers and the gorges and trees. And so the songs are actually the journeys of those ancestors. And by memorizing certain songs, you're in a sense memorizing a route.
0: This is amazing. It's, it's one of my favorite quotes in your book. Dreaming tracks are not etched on the land. They live in the memories of the individuals who inherited the roots from the previous generations who inherited them as well, creating one of the oldest chains of human memory in history. Gorgeous.
1: Yeah, I found some wonderful studies showing that sociologists thought that sort of the longest period that human memory could be transmitted from one generation to the next is like a couple of hundred years. And then they went to a community, I believe it was in the southern part of Australia, And they were able to discover that some of the memories that people were disclosing to them could be tracked back as much as 700 to 800 years. Mm -hmm. And this is just so interesting to me. What I realized, though, was that not much in academia or in the anthropological literature had been written about the Dreaming Tracks as a navigation aid. So that was actually surprising to me that that hadn't necessarily been explicitly recognized so it was quite challenging and exciting to to kind of begin talking to people about that topic
0: our guest right now on travel with rick steves is journalist M. R. o'connor she investigates how we humans navigate the world in her book wayfinding her website is mroconnor.info and that's without the apostrophe and Mara I like also the thought that South Pacific islanders must have had something going on that that's beyond our grasp because think of how Polynesia was populated or settled by people who set out in canoes or outrigger canoes or whatever you call it and peddled into the unknown and they managed to find islands and go to other islands and come back to those islands how do you figure they were able to get around there was no physical landmarks to look at just weather patterns and birds flying around, and I guess really important would be the stars.
1: Yeah, there's this fascinating debate about how did people get there? How did this happen? And I think unfortunately for the people who do live there, some of that debate has been I think they feel ignored these traditions of navigation and I think going back even to the 50s and 60s there was this idea that it was just by accident you know, that these islands were colonized by accident, and one of the most compelling examples of South Pacific navigation today, I think, is the example of the Hokulea, which is a traditional Polynesian voyaging canoe that was built in the 1970s to refute this theory that the South Pacific was colonized by accident. And so that canoe was built and sailed to Tahiti and back to Hawaii without the use of any charts, maps, or Western instruments and it is actually still uh, sailing today, amazingly, mm. 40 years later. It not too long ago completed a four-year voyage around the world during which the crew never used any maps, certainly not GPS, and relied on the same environmental cues that their Polynesian ancestors would have used. As you mentioned, birds, stars, wind, and swells, a very uh, amazing journey that they
0: took. So, Mara, my understanding is there's a place in our brain called the hippocampus, and and when we exercise this navigational skill, we build up our hippocampus, and without our hippocampus, we have no memory of the past or even no ability to imagine the future.
1: Yeah, the hippocampus is, I think, truly a fascinating part of the brain that's quite central to so many aspects of our daily experience, and, you know, I didn't even know about it when I began writing this book. But we have all of these multiple uh, sensory systems, like vision, touch, olfaction, that seem to converge upstream, so to speak, of the hippocampus. And then that information is passed onto what are called place cells inside that part of our brain. And these were discovered in um, the 1970s by a man who later won the uh, Nobel Prize for it. And these place cells fire in patterns that correspond with our place in the environment. And like you said, what's really interesting about the hippocampus is how plastic it is, so how experience can influence its volume. And so one of the most interesting studies about the hippocampus that was done in the early 2000s was about London taxi drivers, and it looked at this volume of their hippocampus compared to control groups and found that as a result of their knowledge of London's you know, very maze-like
0: streets, to do their job, they actually had more volume in this part of the brain. M. R. O'Connor, the book is Wayfinding, the Science and Mystery of How Humans Navigate the World. Mara, thank you for for putting this together and sharing it. And and you finish your book talking a little bit about the word topophilia. What is that, and and how did that summarize uh, the message you want to bring?
1: Well, I think a lot of the book is focused on technology in the sense of, you know, what is the impact of technology on, on modern life and on our individual's experience and how we travel. But I didn't want to ignore by any means the more sort of emotional and psychological and spiritual aspects of travel and how how important it is and nourishing it is to that part of ourselves to sort of look up and pay attention and engage with our surroundings in a very direct way and with our environment. And this word topophilia, which means our love and attachment for place, started to become very poignant to me as a a way of encapsulating that relationship that we have to space. And how wayfinding and navigation is sort of a practice that could potentially enrich those feelings and those attachments to places and also the people in those places. So, you know, the communities that we are visiting or traveling through or live in. And so I just was so happy to actually discover that word (laughs) because Mm -hmm. it helped me Mm. to express something that I hadn't had a word for before.
0: Topophilia. Mara, thank you so much, and I always finish my shows by saying happy travels, and I'll say right now, happy travels, and do a little navigating while you're at it.
1: And I'll say happy wayfinding.
4: <laughs> All right. Take care. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan-Wulner, and Casmara Hall at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling and Amara Kipnikone. We get promotional support from Sheila Gruzov. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York City for their help this week. Rick produces updated walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. You'll find the latest ones in Rick's Audio
3: Europe Travel app. Look for it at ricksteves.com radio. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe, researching and writing guidebooks. His now classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. Rick Steves' Italy is America's top-selling Italian guidebook. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for Rome, Venice, Florence, and Tuscany, plus Rick's Italian phrasebook. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for Italy and beyond, shop online at ricksteves.com.